Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 14. And while you're doing that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just talk a little bit. We're in this series, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. All these times in the book of Luke where Jesus meets with people over food. And, uh, you know, you, you, it wouldn't take much to convince me that Jesus was a foodie because he's, it seems like he's eaten a lot, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I like people that like to eat. So um, I'm wondering this morning if you have, like, your favorite pictures is there a, do you have certain pictures that when you look at them, you're like, boy, that's one of my, that's one of my favorite pictures. Um, I'm, it might be grandkids or, you know, extended family. It might be a Christmas thing. It could be any, any, you know, we've all got them. I want to show you, I just want to start this morning with one of mine. This is one of my favorite, especially recent pictures. The only thing that would make this picture better would be if my wife, Dee Dee, was in it. She took the picture and uh, so she's not in it. That would make this picture perfect for me. But um, this was taken in May. Uh, my kids were all in town at the same time, which doesn't happen very often. I have uh, my daughter Delaney there on the right is in Atlanta, and my son Bennett on the left with the big beard. I tell people hugging him is like hugging an oak tree. He's just a big old boy. He's in Nashville, and uh, my son Tanner there is here in Terre Haute. But they're never... We, very seldom are we together like that um, anymore. And so they were all up and, and in town at the same time and fed them big steak dinner and we were just having a great time. And what I love about this picture is the smiles, the, the, we're at ease, it's peaceful. You know, it's just uh, we're catching up with each other. I'm, I'm, I'm letting them tell me about life and how things are going with their jobs. And, and my daughter-in-law, Lindsay, is there. She's working at a big church in, in Nashville these days. And so there's just... A lot to know and a lot to learn and a lot to get to talk about. And I love the fact that we've done it around our, our table over food. We had a great meal that night. And I also love the fact that that happens in our, that's, that space that you're looking at is that's home for me and Didi. That's, a, we are very comfortable there. That's our home space. That's, that's where we're real. That's where the hair gets let down. Uh, we do our crying, praying, fighting you know, all that stuff in that space. We do it all right there. And, and so to be able to share that with my, my, my grown kids is an amazing thing. I appreciate who's in the picture. I appreciate who took the picture. And um, I, I just love that my family is gathered around like that. Um, but that picture makes what we're going to look at today a little confusing for me. Because we're going to look at something that Jesus said today and when you read it and, and you contrast it to that picture, you're like, okay, I'm confused. Here's what Jesus said. Look at this wonderful, warm statement of Jesus. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your relatives. That's, that sounds awesome, doesn't it? Um, Jesus said that. And, and to which, you, you know, you're tempted to respond, what? I mean, so Jesus, who are we supposed to invite if we're not going to invite our relatives? Can we invite our, maybe our friends? And he says, no, not them either. Don't invite them either. But the fuller version of the verse sounds like this. When you give a luncheon or, or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Now, is it just me, or does that not sound very Jesus-y? Right? It just kind of sounds like Jesus got up on the wrong side of bed that day, and he's just not having a very good day. But as you start to unpack what we're going to look at today, 
It starts to sound very Jesus-y when you begin to understand what it is that Jesus is trying to say. And as is the case with much of this series, we're deconstructing these verses, and, and I'm trying to show you the, 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 um, the background, especially first century Palestinian cultural background that brings these verses to life, things that when we read them just in one sitting, we, we might not necessarily get. And so I'm trying to infuse these with some some extra knowledge and background that helps you go, oh, now I understand what he's saying. And so on second glance, as we look at this, I think you're going to see that um, Jesus is going to make some sense. But what Jesus is doing here is he does what he does often, which is to go over the top. He makes these outlandish statements sometimes. He uses hyperbole. Jesus uses stories. Jesus is a master, master teacher, and he uses everything at his disposal, and sometimes he reaches back and he uses a verse like this to, to arrest our attention, to make us stop and sit up and listen and go, okay, now exactly what is he talking about? And what Jesus is going to talk about here is who we include in our lives, because to invite someone is to include someone. And so as we look at these verses today in Luke chapter 14, we're going to ask, what is it that Jesus is really after? What, what is he, what's he really saying? And as Jesus says these things, he's at a meal. He, there's a host, and he's a guest at a, at a dinner. And when he says this, he is saying this to the host who has invited him. And I'm hoping today that as we see what Jesus has to say, that we walk away with a bit of an expanded invitation list ourselves. Today is about who we include and who we exclude from our life. Today, we look at two conversations. The first conversation has to do with um, who I invite to my table, right? Who's going to be invited to my table? The second conversation is about who God invites and includes at his table. And I think what we're going to see is that it's going to stretch us a little bit because they're not going to match up. We're, we're, we're not going to always find ourselves in line with Jesus on this particular thing, and that's the goal always, is to be lined up with Jesus. So uh, I think it's going to stretch us, and, and uh, that's usually what a conversation with Jesus does. Conversation number one, my invitation list, I want to take you to verse 12 of Luke 14. It says, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. And then he gives us the answer... Uh, to the next verse, to the question that we would be tempted to ask, which is, why, Jesus? Why not invite them? Here's what he says. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. And the key word there is the word repaid. So as is often the case when you read Scripture, you have to leave your 20th, 21st century culture and mindset and you, to transport yourself back to first century Palestine, to Eastern culture, and, and try to consider that things were different then. Things were much different then. And so that's going to that's gonna flavor everything that we read today. Um, and we're going to consider today a big five-syllable word. Are you ready? You ready to look in the dictionary at the word um, reciprocity? Reciprocity. Now, I try not to use big words, A, because I don't know that many, and B, because it just confuses me and confuses everybody else. So if I use big words... What I'll typically do is define it for you, and so let me define the word reciprocity for you. When you hear the word reciprocity, really what I want you to think in your mind is payback. Reciprocity equals payback. We're talking about payback. We're talking about it in a positive 
sense. The culture in which Jesus lived was a highly, highly reciprocal culture. And it could be summed up basically like this. I look out for you and you look out for me, to which we would respond, well, Brett, that's the culture we live in. We live in a culture where I look out for you and you look out for me. Uh, What I'm talking about here, though, is I'm talking about a culture where if I invite you to a dinner, you are now obligated to invite me to one. Obligated. Payback. If you have a big blowout meal with expensive wine and you invite somebody, they are now obligated to have a big dinner and when they do, invite you to the dinner and the wine had better better be every bit as good, the food better be every bit as good, there better be no shortcuts taken. What I've provided for you, I now expect you to pay back for me, and so reciprocity is a, is a culture of payback. That's what's going on in these verses that Jesus is, is in, involved in here. And so that's why Jesus said, when you invite your friends and your relatives over, it's just gonna turn into this huge cycle of reciprocity, and you're gonna invite them over, and they're gonna invite you over, and now you just have this cycle going. And so if someone invited you to their daughter's wedding, and it's this big blowout thing, it's gonna be three days long, there's gonna be dancing and you know, we're, my good friend Michael likes to say we ate like Vikings. You know, you're going to be there for three days and you're going to eat like Vikings. You're just going to eat uh, till your belly's full and great wine, great food, dancing, just really festive. And you get invited to that. What you can expect then is that whoever invited you has already mentally in their mind put themselves on the guest list for your daughter's wedding. Doesn't matter that she's six years old and that she's not even close to being married yet, when 10 or 12 years passes and that wedding arises and it's time to have the wedding, they expect to be invited to your daughter's wedding. And they kind of expect it to be the same kind of wedding uh, celebration that, that they gave to you. You already have mentally put them on the invitation list and you had better not forget it because they are not gonna forget it. And so it's, it's a payback culture. If you offered a five-star experience, you know, you're going to offer this meal and it's just going to be this five-star extravaganza of a thing. Uh, some of you are great at hospitality and when you have dinners, that's what you do. You, you do it to the nines. Everything is thought of and every detail is covered. You can imagine if you came to a dinner I put on, that's not the way it happens because I might forget something really important. I was informed that I skipped a whole half page in my notes this morning. So that's what you get with me. But some of you... Some of you are, are um, you know, you're good at that kind of stuff. And so if you provide a five-star experience, then if, if you were in Jesus' culture at the time, you would only invite people who could reciprocate and give you a five-star experience in exchange. And so what happened were, was this. Five-star people hung out with five-star people. Three-star people hung out with three-star people because that they expected the same, and then no-star people didn't get invited because they couldn't provide it, and they, they, so therefore there was no place for them to go. And so that's the culture that Jesus is speaking into. And Jesus says, listen, when you have your friends over, you're not giving them hospitality. All you're doing is trading hospitality. It's not gracious, and it's not giving. You're just merely exchanging hospitality. Jesus flips this whole thing upside down, which leaves us thinking, well, if I can't invite my friends and I can't invite my family and my brothers and sisters, who in the world am I supposed to invite? And then we come to verse 13. 
But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. I'll be blessed? The people that hear Jesus, this is what they're thinking. I'll be blessed? Are you kidding me? They can't, they can't pay me back. They can't reciprocate. Jesus says, yeah, I know. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous, which is just a way for Jesus to say, hey, the Father is watching what you do, and when you do this, what I'm talking about, you're going to be repaid one of these days when, when you get to spend an eternity with him. Um, when you do for people who have no influence, when you do something nice for them, Jesus, God is going to notice that, and you're going to be repaid for it one of these days. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this, this expression or not. It's one of my favorites. It's a hard thing to live up to, but I think anybody that can do it really is, is on to something. You ever heard the expression, you can tell a lot about a person um, by, by how a person treats people who can do nothing for them? You ever heard that? You can tell a lot about a person by how they treat people who can do nothing for them. Um, I think that that's kind of what Jesus is after here. What this passage says to me is that God is very interested in whom we include at our table. You know, he referenced four groups there, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And I think that out of that group of people, if some of those people were reduced to begging, what this meant was if they ever got invited to your feast, um, they would experience a quality of food and a quantity of food that they had never experienced before, and they would eat until they were so full. They would be so thrilled to be at that table that, that you would see it in their response. But, but this isn't just about physical hunger. There was a way to give food to hungry people and people who lacked advantage without necessarily inviting them to your home. So when you were done with your meal, there was no refrigeration in the time of Jesus. And when you were done with your meal and you've got all these leftovers, what you could say is, you know what, hey, servant, come here, take all this food. We can't eat all this and it's going to go to waste if we, if we just leave it out here on the table. So gather this up and take it down to the corner where all the beggars and all the, the poor people are and, and just start handing out food and make sure that this food gets consumed. And so that was a way to share leftovers with someone without necessarily including them into your space and without including them in your life. And I think what Jesus is saying here is sharing your food without sharing your life is not something that I'm interested in for you. You know, it's, it's, I don't want to be too harsh here because I've done it, you've done it, and, and it's just easy to do. But you know what? Sometimes it's really easy to stroke a check. It's just easy to stroke a check, and I don't have to see it. I don't have to do it. I, I, can, I can just give my check and, and say that I help some people. But I think what Jesus is after is, no, no, slow down, stop down, and include them engage them. When Jesus instructs us to send out our invitations to the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, I think what he's saying is not only invite, you know, invite them, but include them in what you're doing. This isn't just about food. When you invite somebody to your table, you are including them in your life. I think that's what Jesus is after. I think one of the harsh realities is that something we've got to start to consider in our culture 
is that we have a lot of hungry people, and I'm not necessarily talking about a physical hunger. I think we've got people that are spiritually starving, relationally starving, emotionally starving. You know, they probably get three square meals a day. That's probably not their issue. They're just, they're hungry for something else. And, and there are some people who have plenty to eat, but relationally something is missing for them. And I think that some people are hungry just to go to a house and experience a house where there's harmony and peace and there's no fighting. There's no relational uh, bickering. There's no um, you know, verbal attack. It's just calm and people love each other. Some are starved for friendship. They, they're craving to be seen and to be noticed and to be engaged. They feel invisible and they're tired of feeling that way. And sometimes we don't even know how starved we are and, and you know, we just desperately long for this deepened conversation. And, and when someone goes there with us, it's like, man, this just feels so good. Hungry for a taste of grace. Hungry for the fragrant aroma of, of relationship with somebody else. Physically, they have food, but they're famished for something relationally or spiritually. You will have opportunities around you to live out this instruction of Jesus. We all do. This isn't something that we, we can't do. Do not underestimate the capacity of opening your flawed but growing life to people who simply need a taste of grace and a taste of mercy. You have no idea how good that might feel and how much that might be needed for somebody that you could come into contact with. In week number one, I quoted from this little book by a guy named Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. He is from the UK, and uh, he talks about, he and his wife do, they, they do takeout Saturday night. They, they do this every week, and uh, they go get a meal, and they invite people in, and they share the meal with them. And so on this particular night, they have invited a Christian couple that is from out of town, and that couple is going to come and spend the night with them, and, and they're going to, I would assume, go to church the next morning. And the, the wife, Tim Chester's wife, has invited a, a gal from work to come and enjoy the evening with them as well. And so um, this is what their evening is going to consist of. They're going to get Indian takeout, right, curry takeout, and they're going to watch the U.K. version of American Idol. Sounds scintillating, doesn't it? Just can't wait for that. It's going to have an infusion of grace over curry takeout and American Idol. And then, so they do that. They have that night. There's, you know, five of them there. They have a great time. The next day, they got a text, and this is what the text said from the lady that was invited from work. It said, your home was a place of refuge. And Tim Chester writes, and a few weeks later, she started reading her Bible with my wife and me. Indian takeout and American Idol. (laughs) And from that, you get, your home was a place of refuge for me. I don't think we realize how hungry some people in the world are. They may be well-fed, but they're starved relationally, they're starved emotionally, and they're starved spiritually. Chester writes this later in the book. You don't have to give a little sermon. Just be attentive to people and open about your faith. 
we get ourselves so worked up. I've had conversations with some of you where you're going to talk to your dad or you're going to talk to your sister or one of your kids, and you're so worried you're going to mess up the Jesus talk. You're so worried that you're not going to do it right and that you're not going to say the right things. And honestly, I'm just trying to take all the pressure off of you because really all that's necessary is that you pay attention to people. If you will just pay attention to people and listen to what's on their mind, what it is that they're trying to say, what their questions really are, if you can get them to a place where they'll talk to you like that, um, that's half the battle. You, you just need to take all the pressure off yourself and not think that you have to be a good preacher or, or deliver some kind of sermon. Um, this is how Jesus seems to have done a lot of his ministry. Uh, he didn't launch a lot of programs. Jesus seems to have eaten a lot of meals. What you see Jesus doing is enjoying food and enjoying people and having really deep conversations. And Tim Chester tells a story in this little book about a guy named Jim Peterson. Jim Peterson uh, was meeting with this, um, this guy, uh, and he's doing a Bible study with him. And, and it, Mr. Peterson describes this gentleman that he's meeting with as an intellectual Marxist who is really curious and he's very well read and he's read all the Western philosophers. And so you get the image in your head of a very curious mind, really, really smart guy, uh, difficult to convince. And he's having these Bible studies with him and conversations and just a relationship he's trying to develop over the course of four years. And the guy's name is Mario. <clears throat> One day, Mario says something to Jim Peterson. He says, Jim, I desire to be a follower of Jesus. And you think about this from Jim Peterson's perspective, four years he's invested. And those are the words he's wanted to hear more than any other words. I desire to be a follower of Jesus. And so after all the questions and answers, after all the Bible studies, after all of the investment, Jim Peterson gets to hear what he wants to hear. Mario wants to follow Jesus. Sometime later, Mario asked Jim Peterson, do you know what was the most critical event that happened to move me to a place where I wanted to follow Jesus. Well, Jim Peterson's ears perk up, right? What was it? What did I say? What, what was the thing? You know, was I a rock star? Did I do it right? What, what, what Bible study pushed him over the edge? What profound thing did I say to finally get Mario to a place where he wanted to follow Jesus? And this is how Mario responded. Remember the first time that I stopped by your house? We were on the way somewhere together and I had a bowl of soup with you and your family. And I sat there observing you with your wife, and I sat there watching you relate to your children, and I, I just was so moved by it. And I sat there, and as I sat there, I thought to myself, when will I ever have a relationship like that with my own fiancé? And he said, when I realized the answer was never, I concluded that I had to become a Christian for the sake of my own survival a bowl of soup, <laughs> and watching Jim Peterson with his kids. The problem is Jim Peterson remembers that night as well. Jim Peterson remember, remembers the night a little differently. Jim said that, I do remember that night. He said, my kids were rascals that night, and I had to, on several occasions, call them down in front of Mario, and I was so disappointed in my kids, and I was so frustrated at what my kids were doing, and I, I, he said, you know, I, I just, they were disobedient, and the night was disruptive, um, you know, Peterson did remember what was going on that night. And this is the conclusion that Jim Peterson drew. 
It is my observation that any Christian who is sincerely seeking to walk with God, in spite of all his flaws, is reflecting something of Christ. What's he trying to say? You know what? As you, it's about pursue Christ and include people. Just pursue Christ and include people. This isn't about perfection. This is about direction. The, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you learn about love and grace, the more that stuff begins to, to soak into you, it starts to come out of you. And as it comes out of you, the people who rub up against that, you become just irresistible to them because they've, they've never experienced that before. It, it, it gives people a taste of something that maybe they've never tasted. Pursue Christ and include, pe- include people. So it's Saturday. It's the Sabbath. Jesus is having dinner at the home of this Pharisee. And, and he looks at him and he says, when you have dinner or you have lunch, don't just invite your relatives. Don't invite your brothers and sisters, your rich neighbors. They are likely to want to pay you back. And then you get into that cycle. Don't, don't get into that. Uh, they, you know, instead, invite people who cannot pay you back, to which we would say, why? And he says, I want you to include others because somebody included you. And it's here that we come to the second conversation. Who is invited? Who's on God's invitation list? Jesus says, you know, he ta- he's t- as he's talking about this, he says, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There's a guy sitting at the table. Don't know much about this guy. I assume he's a Pharisee. Um, it, Jesus was probably at a table with several Pharisees. And uh, this guy pipes up in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And now you've got a guy that's trying to be spiritual and trying to show off how much Bible he knows. And he's going to respond to Jesus. Have you ever been around somebody like that? And so what's going on here is 600 years earlier, Isaiah, the prophet, has likened the coming of the Messiah to this vast dinner that will be thrown. And when Jesus is talking about who he's going to invite, this guy, you know, pipes up and says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's almost as if Jesus is looking at him and you can almost hear Jesus say, and you think you're going to be invited. (laughs) You, You think you're going to be at that meal? And Jesus is on the verge of teaching a very powerful and disruptive story. He's going to use a parable. And if you don't know what a parable is, a parable is is something that that Jesus uses that didn't necessarily happen. It's a story that he tells to make a point. And so this is a fictitious story that Jesus tells to make his point. Verse 16, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. So Jesus is setting this up. Great banquet, many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. And you say, uh, okay, this is the second invitation in a dual invitation system. Brett, why do there have to be two invitations? Well, I'll just teach you like this. When I grill steaks, I get into my refrigerator and I pull the steaks out, but I have previously gone to the grocery store and bought these steaks, right? That's where they came from. Back in Jesus' day, that's not how it happened. If you wanted steak, you went out into the field and you got one of these guys. Aww, right? To which I would just ask you, what do you think all those shepherds in the Bible are doing, right? They're not running a petting zoo. Um, They're raising animals for slaughter. That's what they're doing. And so the question is, how do you turn this 
into this? That's the question. It's not an exact science. So the first step is you would send out invitations, okay? You would go around to people. You would send a servant. And you, would, you would go around and you'd say, hey, so-and-so's going to have this. We're going to have this dinner. We'd like to know if you'd like to be included. Will you be able to be there? And there's kind of like this verbal RSVP kind of thing going on. Um, can you come? Yes, I'll be there. Can you come? No, I'll be out of town. Okay, can you come? And so you're gathering this guest list, and now you know at the end of it how many people you need to plan to feed at your particular dinner. You, you, now you know whether you need one goat or two. Do I need a goat and a, a, you know, a, 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 lamb, a, a calf? Do I need to kill a couple of cows? What, what am I going to have to do? But this is a complicated process. You're going to slaughter the animal. It's kind of gross, but the animal has to be bled. And then it's got to be um, cleaned, and then you're going to skin it, and then you're going to roast it. And so while you're doing all this, you don't want your guests just kind of walking around, you know, looking over your shoulder, kind of when's it all going to be done, kind of kicking the rocks like, hey, you know, any time now would be great. So you, you did a dual invitation system. You would say, hey, just know that on this day we're going we're gonna to have this dinner, and then the second invitation will come. I'll send my servant, and they'll show up, and you'll get the invitation. Hey, now's the time to come. Once all the food is fully laid and the meal is laid, you send out your servant. Your servant would say, come, for everything is now ready. And that was your cue to head over to so-and-so's house. That was the second invitation, which you probably didn't even need, right? Because you've been looking forward to this. And, and you, you, know, you probably have worked up an appetite. You can smell the meat roasting. You can probably smell the be bread baking throughout the little village, and you know that it's getting close to time, and you're probably waiting for the servant to come and say, hey, it's all ready. Now come and eat. You've been looking forward to this all day. So knowing all that, how does it hit you if the servant knocks on the door and the one who answers the door that you invited a week earlier, he looks at you and he says, uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to be able to come. What? And it happens at the next door. And it happens at the next door. And it happens at the next door. And what you've got is a systematic denial of the second invitation. And, and these people are all RSVP'd, okay? Verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. This is Jesus talking. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And what Jesus is about to do is he's about to use these excuses to demonstrate the ridiculousness of the excuses. Okay, so in this one, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. In Jesus' day, you would never have bought a field without first going to know you would investigate the field, you'd know how much rainfall it got, you'd know how many rocks were there, you'd know what kind of crops the previous owner had raised on it, you'd know what the field is good for, what it's not good for. You would know everything about the field before you ever pulled the trigger on the purchase of the field. And so you bought a field and you're just now going to go looking at it? Are you kidding me? That's really what Jesus is trying to achieve. Excuse number two is equally ridiculous. Verse 19, another said, I've just bought the five, five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Again, ridiculous. You would not buy one yoke of oxen without first test plowing this team to make sure that one isn't stronger than the other, because if one's stronger than the other or one's weak, 
what you're going to get, they're not going to pull together and you're going to get uneven rows. And you don't want that. That's not efficient. And so you wouldn't buy one oxen, much less five, unless you put them in a field and you tested them out and you pulled them together. And so this person's saying, hey, I got to go try out these oxen. Jesus is like, that's a ridiculous, it's just ridiculous that anybody would say that. Verse 20, still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Seriously? I mean, you couldn't have told me that last week when you RSVP'd for this dinner? You didn't know last week you were going to be getting married and that this was going to be a problem? Um, This was beyond insulting. This is collaborated. Okay? This is calculated. These excuses are so lame, they are intended to shame and humiliate the guest. They're intended to make them feel bad. There's, There's nothing accidental about this. And so if you, if, let's just say it this way. If you invited a couple of friends to your house, let's say seven or eight friends to your house, and you're there and you're, you know, you serve them some cheese and crackers and something to drink, and you're just kind of waiting for your wife to get everything ready, and then she comes in and she says, hey, it's time to come into the kitchen, let's all eat. And one by one, your guests get up, and one of them says, hey, you know, I just realized that the car lot's going to be open for another hour. I'm going to go test drive a car. You would, you would look at them like, What? And another one says, yeah, you know, um, I've been thinking about this rental property. I need to go check out this rental property. Well, now's not the time to do that. The next one stands up and says, hey, I'm going to go home and wax my cat. You're like, what? Who who waxes their cat, right? Like the the excuses are ridiculous. And and what you realize is this is a setup. They, they did this on purpose. They intentionally did this to shame me. So Jesus, what is it like to be you? And I think Jesus would say, what's it like to be me? It's to come to people who say they've been waiting for me for hundreds of years and to offer a feast only to have them publicly shame me and humiliate me. Now, we started reading this in verse 12 of chapter 14. I want you to see how the story begins. The story begins in Luke uh, 14, verse 1, and I just want you to see one verse. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. He was being carefully watched. He's come to a place in his ministry where they are beginning to gather evidence on him. He, it's starting to close in. He feels them. He feels the eyes on him. He knows that they're trying to get to a place where they want to track him down and they want to do him harm. Back to his story. The servant goes back to the master and says, um, uh, there's a problem. Nobody's coming to the dinner. In Jesus' story, verse 21, he says, the owner of the house became very angry. Well, you think so? What are you going to do? You've got a table full of food, and all of the guests have conveniently declined, and the master says, my table will be full, and I will have company to enjoy it with me. And if, they, if these people don't want my company, I will find people who do. The second part of verse 21, then the owner of the house became very angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Do those classes of people sound familiar to you? Who ends up at Jesus' table? Well, sometimes the Pharisees, not all Pharisees, hated Jesus. 
Some of the Pharisees actually gave up their, their pursuit of being a Pharisee and began to follow Jesus. But Jesus said, you know what? If they decline the invitation and all they want to do is shame me and humiliate me, I'll invite the likes of Matthew and Zacchaeus, tax collectors that nobody likes. Everybody hated Matthew and Zacchaeus. And Jesus said, you know what? If Pharisees don't want to hang out with me, that's who I'll invite. I'll invite the people like the woman we looked at last week who came in, the sinful woman who cried at the feet of Jesus, let her hair down, anointed Jesus' feet with perfume. Jesus said, that's who I'll include at my table. I'll go to the woman at the well that everybody knows her reputation. Everybody knows what she's been into and nobody wants to have anything to do with her, but she's welcome at my table. She's included. And after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the story of Jesus and the table of Jesus is open to former idol worshipers, Greeks and Romans who were entrenched in demonic worship and superstition. Jesus said, they're going to end up at my table as well. And the message of Jesus went beyond the Jews to the Romans and the Greeks and eventually to us. My dear brothers and sisters, we are the poor. We are the lame. We are the crippled. We are the blind. We are the poor, spiritually bankrupt people who couldn't pay our spiritual bills and Jesus came along and said, I'll pay it for you. We are the crippled and the lame who walk through life with a limp because of something stupid that we did or because somebody did something stupid and it blew back on us. We are the blind. Blind to the harm that we cause other people. Blind to our need for God. Blind to our own self-absorption. Blind to our own lack of humility. How many times have you sung this to yourself or with a group? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the lame. Who I include around my table should reflect who God would have around his table. And I include others because someone included me. I include those who are radically flawed because I am radically flawed. The table. It can represent the table at your house. It can represent a, a restaurant table. It can represent, you know, if you work at a hospital, it can be the, you know, in the cafeteria there. Um, it represents your space. It represents your love and your care and your concern and your investment. You know, we looked at, a couple of weeks ago at something. I want to take a look at it again. I asked the question, you know, if, if I were to ask you where is Cross Lane, the Cross Lane Community Church, the answer is 2204 Lafayette Avenue, uh, Terre Haute, Indiana. You know, if you're going to tell somebody, you just go to the north side of Terre Haute. It's up off the off Lafayette Avenue. It's, you know, it's just north of the Fort Harrison intersection. And that's an that's an accurate answer for where is the Cross Lane 
community church. But a better answer, and I think a more accurate answer, is this. It's just the city of Terre Haute. Because that's where we work, that's where we live, that's where we play. That, that's where our kids are growing up. That's where we relate with our family most of the time. That's, you know, that's, this is home for us. And so, yes, Cross Lane is incredibly powerful when we are gathered together like this and we pray for one another and we encourage one another and we worship together. That's wonderful. But Cross Lane is incredibly powerful when we are scattered and we're having influence with people who may not know Christ within this particular part of the, the city that we're in, right? So this is awesome to be here this morning. I love being with you. I love you. But we're better off and we're doing what Jesus wants us to do when we leave here and we go to those places where God would say, hey, listen, they need you. Theologian and chef Simon Carey Holt, how's that for a title? Theologian and chef. I, I want one of those titles. He said this, setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes provides a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Context. It's about creating a space where God can be at work. Back to my table surrounded by my kids. I think that this delights the heart of Christ. I think that on this night when that was going on, I think, um, I think Jesus looked down and he said, yeah, I love that. I love that. But I think where God would nudge us is who else would we include at the table? Brett, who, who are you leaving out? Who, who can you reach out to? Who, who needs, who's hungry relationally, spiritually, emotionally? I think when we read earlier where Jesus said, do not invite your family, I don't think he's saying don't feed your family. I think instead he's saying, go beyond that. Just get, get past that, go beyond that. There are people that are going through life spiritually, emotionally, relationally hungry. Gather around your table the kind of people I desire to have gathered around my table. We include because we have been included. I want you to just, there's one little phrase I want you to hear yourself say this morning before you leave. Would you just say this with me? He included me. You ready? He included me. That's true. That's true. He included you, blind, lame, crippled, poor. That's us. And if we want to be like Jesus, we need to be looking out for those kind of people. Let me pray over us this morning. Lord, we do so desperately want to be like you. It is a, such a tall order because you nailed life. You got it perfect. You're the only one who ever did. And Father, we are flawed. We are selfish. The biggest obstacle to what I'm talking about this morning is our own selfishness. It's pride. It's a lack of humility. And so, Father, my prayer is that you would give us your eyes to see. You would help us to look to the left and right. You were so good at looking to the left and the right and seeing those that everybody else had forgotten and left out. And so, Father, the question we're asking today is, who do I need to include at my table? We depend so much on you, Father. May your Holy Spirit empower us this week to be the kind of believer, the kind of follower that you can look at and say, yeah, that is what I'm after. We love you, Lord. 
We worship you in these moments. You are awesome. And we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.